If you would, this morning, uh, turn in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to go to, uh, to Romans chapter 3. And uh, it's quite a, a lengthy passage, but we're going to be in uh, verses 19 through 31. You know, there's a song that I remember um, from my youngest days. And uh, uh, I remember my grandfather actually sitting out on the front porch and he'd always be humming or singing a song, and uh, uh, it, it was the old gray mare. Now, you got to understand, my grandfather grew up in, about, in uh, the late 1800s, but uh, he loved that song. He was always whistling it or humming it, stuff like that. And, and I'm, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure if it was just a line from the song or if it was the chorus. But um, I, I do remember a portion of that song says, the old gray, uh, gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. Well, my friends, if you're saved this morning, very th- very same thing could be said about you. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away, Behold, all things are become new. Now, as we read the book of Romans, and in particular, verses 9 through 18 of this chapter, we find that that man is totally depraved. And there's, there's absolutely no good in him at all. Everything he touches is tarnished by the sin that that fills his being, and he is wretched in the sight of God. And as we consider these things, uh, we we quickly realize that the Scripture was talking about the man we see in the mirror. And as the text continues to unfold before us, and, and the text we're fixing to look at, Paul continues his line of thinking. But he, takes an, he does a complete U-turn. He, uh, he shifts directions on us. And he gives us this concluding thought concerning the old man, and he begins to talk about this new creature that Jesus makes when He saves the sinner. And, and it's that new saved fellow that we want to consider this morning. So with that in mind, let's consider this passage that we just read, or that we're going to look at, and think for a while about the new man, man in my mirror. And we're going to see that he just ain't what he used to be. See, first off, that new man, he originally was a ruined man. It says in verse 19, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So this man that was looking in the mirror, he was declared a sinner by the law. See, because the the law of God exposes all things that, that man is guilty of, man stands exposed as a sinner and obviously condemned by the very, uh, that very law. J.B. Phillips once said, he said, the law is the straight edge that shows us just exactly how crooked we are. And no one can look into the Word of God seriously and miss the truth about what Paul's saying. 
Look at verse 19 again. It says, it says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. See, it, it's a mirror of God's Word that reveals just how far off the mark we are. I want you to see that this man looking back at us in the mirror, originally he was damned as a sinner by the law. It says in verse 20, it says, it says therefore, and anytime you see that word therefore, you've got to take and look and see what it's there for. Um, it, uh, it, Paul's uh, giving, us a, giving us a thought. He says, he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, God gave the law to man as a tool. It was given to show man exactly how far off the mark we are, that, that we, uh, we do have sin in our lives. And, and what it's meant to do is actually to drive us to Jesus. Look at Galatians 3.24. It tells us that wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to do what? To bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by the faith. But after that faith has come, we're no longer under a schoolmaster. So if the law's entire reason for existing could be summed up in one statement, it would have to be that the law was given to show man that he's guilty in the eyes of God and that he's in need of a Savior. Look at James chapter 1. It tells us that if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholdeth himself and he goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So as I said, and, and what I'm trying to show is the law is like a mirror. It can show you just exactly how dirty your face is, but the mirror can't be used to clean you up. Now I want you to think about this just for a second. You don't take the mirror and rub it on your face to get clean, do you? The mirror exists to point you to the water. And so it is with the law of the Lord. See, the law can't clean us up. But it can create a hunger in us for the one who can. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I also want you to see this morning that the new man in my mirror, he's a redeemed man. That old gray mirror ain't what he used to be. Look at verse 21. He says, it says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. It's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, I want you to notice, we, we already talked about that word therefore, but I want you to notice this little conjunction at the front of that, uh, that uh, verse, that, that conjunction but. Now, what that little bitty word does is it denotes a change of thought. See, every time you, you, you get to reading in the Bible... And, and you start, uh, and, and Paul especially here, he starts talking in all his uh, lawyer jargon and everything like that, and he's putting this thought, start looking for the buts and the wherefores and the therefores. Because he's going to tell you that because of what you just read, he's going to sum it up right here. 
And, and this, uh, this little word, but, as I said, it, 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 it denotes a change of thought. And it stands as a worthy doorkeeper to the thoughts that are going to follow. Now, after reading the preceding verses, I can take a look at this and I realize that I was a ruined man. Yet I thank the Lord that there's a change that has taken place and it's represented by this little word, but... Pay attention to those little words. Um, Remember that even the largest door turns on a relatively small hinge. And these few verses that we're about to look into now are just jam-packed full with theological, uh, theological truth. A gentleman by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse, he called them the heart of the Bible. Reformer Martin Luther labeled them as the marrow of theology. This, what we're fixing to look at, um, it, it, it's been described as uh, perhaps the deepest theological sea in the New Testament. And, and, and although this morning we, we just don't have time, we, uh, we can't do them justice in, in just the few minutes that we have here this morning, but let's try to, try to glean and pull off what we can nonetheless. And I want you to notice the the traits about the new man in my mirror. First off, this man that's looking back at me, he's experienced faith. Look at verses 21 through 23. It tells us that now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, and it's being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, because there's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, as as, as we've been talking about, man has a very big problem. He's got a sin problem. And and Paul presents this fact loud and clear in the first three chapters of Romans. And, And see, man's problem, in a nutshell, is that he's lost and he can't do anything in and of himself to get to God. It... The Bible tells us that man can't roll up his sleeves. Uh, There's a lot of us, uh, including myself, that have this this blue-collar theology. And we believe that if we we just roll up our sleeves and and, and grit uh, grit our teeth and just believe hard enough and just keep going, we can do something for God and we can get to God. But the Bible tells us we can't work our way to Him. We can't be good enough to please Him. In fact, Matthew 5.20 says, I say unto you that you accept your righteousness. Jesus is talking, unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And I I look at that verse and and, and I I remember my mouth just dropping and hitting my chest and I'm kind of like Peter and I'm going, who then can be saved? Because I realize yet that God the Father demands perfect righteousness to enter His heaven. In fact, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, uh, Jesus tells us uh, uh, still at the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And I remember reading that and going, Wow, uh, maybe this just ain't for me. uh, (laughs) There ain't no way I can live up to that. You see, the problem is man will never be right with God by virtue of his own efforts. In fact, Romans 3.23, it tells us that every one of us, we're in the same boat. All have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. Now, when the Bible says that we've come short of the glory of God, it, it means that we literally miss the mark. Any of you guys uh, 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 bow hunters? I remember um, several years back, and it, it's all, this has always stuck with me, because I wasn't a bow hunter. And uh, I remember there for a while we had this uh, uh, archery ministry here. And I remember I come, I, I'd, uh, I'd gotten this bow, and um, because I'm short-armed, the, the button was way back here instead of being uh, kind of right down on the kisser. And I remember trying to pull this thing back, and, and everybody's in that gym back there, and before I let it go, the arrow went off to the side. So instead of shooting straight in front of me, I think I almost hit the, uh, um, the, uh, the uh, storage room there in the back. I completely missed the mark, not by just a little bit, by an entire mile. In fact, I thought they weren't going to let me ever shoot again in there. But um, the, the, when the Bible says that we come short of the glory of God, it means we've literally missed the mark. And the tense of this word, it means that um, no matter, uh, it, it, it suggests that it's an ongoing state of affairs. We're continually missing the mark. And, and most of the time, the harder we try, the, uh, the, harder, uh, the more we miss it. And in and in other words, no matter how good we may get, we're going to still be missing the, uh, the mark and falling short of the glory of God. See, you can't get to God on your own. Therefore, God allows men to be made righteous by them placing their faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what these verses are telling us is that salvation doesn't come by works or being good. Salvation comes solely by faith. It's solely by trust. You can't buy your way to heaven. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. You can't work hard enough to get to heaven. However, you know, and I'm really glad it's easy. I can believe or I can trust in Jesus. I can be saved by grace. I can be de uh, declared righteous by the Heavenly Father. And I can go to heaven with absolutely nothing but faith to show for it. This new man, looking back at me, he's also experienced freedom. Look at verse 24. It tells us, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this verse introduces us to two great theological words, and they are justify and redemption. Now, the word justify, is a, it's a legal term, and it, it really means to, to declare one not guilty in a court of law. The, or to make one as he ought to be. In a biblical sense, it means that, that God, in His power and His grace, declares us to be righteous and worthy of a relationship with Him. Not by our own efforts, not by anything we've done, but solely on the work of Jesus Christ and by trusting in Him. Now the word redemption, and it's used together in this, it means to set at liberty, to set free after the payment of a ransom price. So, to put it all together, 
When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, God applied the price that Jesus paid on the cross to our account and He declared us righteous and that He thereby freed us from the condemnation and the consequences of our sins. He literally set us free. You know, the moment you trusted, the moment you saved, and and the peace of God came upon you, you were as free as you will ever be eternally. See, in in Jesus, I'm free from the need to try and please God. He's already pleased with me because of what Jesus did at the cross. I no longer have to try to be good to get God to let me go to heaven. He's already given me His own righteousness. And in His eyes this morning, I am as positionally holy, I'm as positionally perfect as He Himself is. When the moment you trusted, you were as perfect as you ever be eternally. And the only two words, I mean, I think that's a blessing. And, and, and the only two words that come to mind on that is love and grace. See, here's the kicker the Bible says in this verse that all of this happens freely. And the word literally means without a cause. He'd done it because he wanted to. Basically, God gave us his righteousness even when we didn't deserve to receive it. He gave it to us even though we could never earn it. Even though we could never pay him back for it. He gave it to us without a single cause or without a single string attached to it. Now, you think about this, and it, it just blows my mind. I've had the wheels turning. Of course, that's, uh, <laughs> that's kind of scary sometimes. But it, there's just absolutely no explaining why a holy God would save a bunch of hell-deserving sinners other than love and grace. And I know I, I don't understand all there is to know about salvation and, and redemption. In fact, I, I probably know just enough to be dangerous with it. But the, the, the truth is, I'm glad that I can sp- experience it even though I don't understand it. And you know, the thing about it is, I, I got to thinking about it, and there's just a ton of things that I don't fully understand. You know, I don't understand how electrons are created by a turbine and flow through wires until they make a light glow. But you know what? I don't sit in the dark until I do understand it. For the life of me, I can't figure out how a brown cow eats green grass and gives white milk. But it don't mean I don't enjoy a glass of that milk every night. And see, my point is, even though my methods, or even though my knowledge of God's methods and gifts are incomplete... I can stand here and still enjoy the benefits of those things today, nonetheless. Now this man, looking back at us, he's also experienced forgiveness. Look at verse 25 and 26. It says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. These verses tell us that, that Jesus 
is the propitiation. Now that's another $5 word, uh, theological word, but it means an appeasement or a satisfying. Now the word comes from a Hebrew word which was used to cover the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And, uh, and, and the, the Holy of Holies was sprinkled with blood of the, what they call an expiatory victim. In other words, the sacrifice. And it was sprinkled on the annual day of atonement. And, uh, of atonement. and this rite signifying that the life of the people, the loss of which they had merited by their sins, was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim, and that God, by this ceremony, was appeased and their sins expiated. That's the official definition. What this means for you and me is that when we trusted Jesus as our Savior, God didn't require a single thing further from us. It means that He is absolutely satisfied. And because of this, He has forgiven us by the remission of sins that are past. Now the word remission means to pass over, to disregard. When we trusted Christ, God put our sins behind Him and has forever cleansed us and forgiven us. Look at some verses in the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 12, it tells us as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's a long ways. But as far as the east is from the west, so far hath He removed our transgressions from us. Micah seven nineteen. It says he'll turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Our sins are cast into the depth of God's forgetfulness forever, never to be brought up again. Colossians chapter 2. It says, And, uh, and you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way and nailed it to the cross. 1 John 1.7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. As you can see, in glory to God above, in my mirror... That, that man isn't what he used to be. But how about the person that looks back at you? What are you trusting in this morning for your salvation? Is it Jesus and His shed blood or is it, is it some religious experience? Have you experienced that peace and, and, and the glory and the power of the new birth in your life? You know, for, for several weeks I've been teaching in Sunday school the bad news that, uh, in, in Romans that man's a hell-bound sinner and, and truthfully he deserves nothing better. It's his just reward. Today, I'm glad that I can stand up here and share the good news of eternal life through Jesus Christ to you. See, that's, it's, the, uh, it's the bad and the good. And, and i got to ask, I mean, a crowd decides, uh, i got to ask, uh, are you saved this morning? If not, or if you're not sure, let us help you. You can't do it on your own, 
So let us help you. Ask us about those classes this morning before you leave today. We'd love to sit down with you and explain this in detail so that you can understand it and that you can make a logical choice and you can have, you can have a faith of substance, something like a big old ribeye steak that you just sink your teeth into and go, man, that was good, dude. But finally, I'd like to, uh, to you to see this morning that the new man in my mirror, he's a righteous man. Look at verse 27. Paul asks, he says, where's the boasting then? Is it excluded? By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. See, according to Paul here, in these verses, the new man knows that he isn't saved by what he'd done. He isn't saved by keeping the law. He's saved by pure faith. Therefore, there's, there's nothing about this that he can boast about. Nothing about his salvation that he can brag about. He didn't have anything to do with it. Instead of, of man taking the credit for something which he had nothing to do, all glory and honor has to be given to the Lord. And see, this man knows that the law was just a tool used by the Lord to bring uh, him to himself. See, this man looking back at me in trying to please God, he knows that God is already pleased. He isn't trying to earn brownie points with God. He knows that God is already completely satisfied. He knows that his salvation is complete in the person of the Lord Jesus, and he glorifies God on that account. See, he's passed from the state of salvation having to do with the do's and realize that it's all summed up in the duns. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that there are two chairs sitting in an empty room. And one of these chairs, as you walk in, has a label of do, and the other's labeled done. Now, these two chairs represent every religion and belief system in the world. Every system, when it's boiled down to its basics, is either a do or a done. Now, I also want you to imagine for a moment that the do religions are all based on the notion that man has to do something to please the Lord such as uh, pray or join a church or give money or be a good person, make a sacrifice, make a pilgrimage, um, go to Mass, uh, uh, you know, anything. Walk uphill both ways on crushed glass. Um, all religions may seem different from the outside. And, and, and all the do religions, uh, although they look different, they all require their followers to do something in order to earn salvation. You know, religions like uh, uh, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Shintoism, Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witness, and Roman Catholicism are examples of do religions. We could sit here and talk for a while, but in short, every religion in the world is a do religion except one. And that's Christianity. 
Christianity is a done religion. Now, there, there are those who are truly saved, and they haven't done anything and aren't required to do anything because Jesus has already done everything that is necessary. Now, every person in this room is sitting in one of two chairs. You're either in a do chair where you're doing things to get to heaven and probably driving yourself nuts doing it, or you're in the done chair where you know that everything's already been done for you. You got to be honest with yourself um, this morning or or as, as soon as possible. Which chair are you really sitting in right now? See, the reason I ask and the reason I, uh, I hit on it a couple times is that your eternity hinges on your answer. Now, this man looking back at me that's righteous, he now has a new relationship with the Lord. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul says, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing... It is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. See, now because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we're brought into a right relationship with the Heavenly Father. See, as as of right now, He isn't just the Father of our Lord. He is our Father, and we are His sons and daughters at this very moment. 1 John 3, 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we're going to be like Him, for we're going to see Him as He is. My paraphrase. Lord saved us. He justified us, accepted us in His Son, and, and even now, he, he awaits us in our new home in heaven. You know, we're no longer strangers. We're family. You know, I shared with the Sunday school this morning, I, I, I was really impressed by uh, JFK growing up, you know, and, and uh, there was a standing rule. He could be in the Oval Office, you know, and the, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on, and you've got all these leaders and all these high-powered, you know, guys with double stars and, you know, everything all sitting around. And, and there was only one person in the world that could stop that meeting and stop the president, who's important. He's running the country, and, and uh, uh, um, there's, there's a possibility of nuclear war with, with Cuba. But when his son walked in the room, the whole world had to stop because John John needed his daddy. That is just a a smidgen of the relationship we have with the Heavenly Father. He runs the universe, but he's got time for me and you. Second Corinthians 5.18 says, In all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, and not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We're reconciled 
the books are uh, the books are balanced. You're, uh, you can boldly walk into the throne room of God, you, and and cry, "Abba, Father," and present your cares. This new man looking back at me, he has a new relationship with life as well. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. See, in this verse, the great apostle asks one final question. If we're saved by faith apart from the law, then does this make the law of God null and void? In other words, can we just throw out the law and live as we please? I mean, if, if we're really saved by grace, we just don't need the law. We can throw it out and we can live how we want, right? The answer Paul gives is God forbid. See, what he's saying is that our salvation does not do away with the law. Instead, our salvation establishes or fixes in place the law of God. And, and we, we say, well, how is this true? Well, the Lord used the law to teach us that we're sinners. He used the law to show us that we were doomed without Him. He used the law to establish our need. And now that we're saved, the Lord begins to live this law through our lives. And the difference is that we're not living the law to be saved, and we're not living the law because we have to. We just naturally begin to live out the spirit of the law because of the, uh, uh, the law of the Lord, because He's placed His spirit in us, and because He's made us to be partakers of His divine nature. Now here's the deal. Before I was saved, I saved all I wanted to. I mean, I, I sinned all I wanted to. I'm saved now, I sin all I want to. What's the difference? I don't want to sin now. But uh, my wonder has been changed. Before, I didn't care. Now I just don't want to do it. 2 Peter 1.3 says, According as His divine nature hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby we are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In the simplest of terms... We begin to live like God and His Son when we're saved. We are being conformed into the image of His precious Son on a daily basis. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not referring to sinless perfection. Ain't none of us achieved that. What I'm referring to is the fact that Jesus changes every life He saves by grace. He changes our wonders and he, he puts a desire and a longing within our hearts to love Him, to live for Him, and to do the things that please Him, to honor Him, to bring glory to Him. And by that, we show the world that people can live for God by letting God live in them. See, when I look in the mirror, the same faith our face that has looked at me for 57 years still looks back. However, I know that the old man of sin has been changed into a new man 
by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and, and I don't make that claim with the least bit of bragging. See, I know uh, every day that there's a lot of room for improvement in my life. However, I do know where I was when the Lord found me. And I do know what He did for me when He saved me. And I know the changes He's made in my life over the years. Now let me ask you a question. Has the Lord made a change in you? Are you saved? I've got to ask again. Which chair are you sitting in this morning? See, if the Lord's shown you that you're in the wrong chair, wouldn't it be kind of a great time this morning to just change seats? The Lord's still saving souls by grace, and He'll save you if you come to Him. And I, I, I don't know your heart, but God does, and, and so do you. So if there's, if there's a spiritual need in your life, if there's just a need in your life, why don't you let Jesus meet it now as we just go into this time of invitation? Pastor. Next month, on the 16th, we're going to celebrate 70 years as a church. Pretty big deal. What you heard today is the essence of everything we've been about for 70 years. That's why we're here. We're here because you can't cut it. You can't make it. You can't be good enough. Nothing you can do is going to please God. Nothing. That's what religion is like. Religion is man trying to crawl, climb, walk, run, somehow get to God. Not one's ever made it yet. And you will not be the first. You can't do it. I, uh, I, I'll never get over 1977. The preacher came to my house. And he opened up a ready old Bible that was about to fall to pieces. But you could still read it real good. And he showed me right there in these scriptures you were looking at today that the whole reason Jesus went to the cross is because I can never be good enough no matter what I do. And I had had that drummed into me my whole life. You got to live it. You got to this. You got to that. You got to measure up. The only thing you can do when somebody's telling you you have to measure up, if you look inside, you're going to realize you can't do it. And the only thing, the only thing left is the world and the sin and all the pleasures it offers. So that's what you turn to. Some of you have been there. Some of you maybe are there. You don't have to stay there. This song that uh, Praise Team's going to sing, it's a, uh, it's a precious song for my wife. It's the one that Jesus touched her heart with.
to let her know that he's there for her. That song says, there's room at the cross for you. Well, that Thursday night in February 1977 is when Jesus showed me that there was room for one more. It was my spot. Plus says, there's still room for one. Actually, there's room for more than one, but you can be that one. You don't have to live the rest of your life hoping if somehow, some way you're going to make it because you're not. You can be that one. You can know that you have eternal life. Some of you didn't when you came to Lighthouse, but you do now. So you know what we're talking about. There's room for you. We're going to sing this song. And if you want to take your spot at the cross, you either walk up here and let me know or let me know on your way out today. And we'll set up a plan to show you what that preacher showed me. And you can know for yourself for sure that you have, not will have or might have or cross your fingers and hope something works, but have eternal life. And you can know.